Um, today we're going to look at Psalm 40 and read the entirety of this passage. But before we do so, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord's illumination upon His Word and upon the preaching this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word, we know that our hearts and our minds are blinded by sin. And so we pray that by Your Spirit we would be illuminated, that You would open our eyes, open our minds, give us ears to hear and eyes to see Your Word, that we may know of You and learn of You and grow in grace. And we give You all the honor and glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us read Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love, your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurts. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. As Pastor Steve noted, we are here for a youth retreat this weekend, and yesterday we went to the beach. 
The beach is a wonderful place to visit, but there's one thing that I think everyone who ever goes to the beach hates. And what is that? It's walking through the sand. And it's not just the, sand, the fact that sand gets in everything and coats everything and you spend the rest of the week trying to get it clean and your car vacuumed out, etc. It's the actual walking from the parking lot to the ocean. Especially when you've got a whole group of people and you're trying to haul coolers of food and you've got chairs and wood and all this kind of stuff. And you look out and you've got about 500 yards to go. And so you put your head down and you start dragging that cooler or carrying the chairs and you walk 500 yards and you look up and you realize you still have 400 to go. (laughs) And you keep trudging. And why do we keep doing that? Why do we put ourselves through that walk through the sand? Well, it's because we see the beach on the other side. We see the water, the waves, the ocean. And we look forward to them and we know that even though it feels like with every step it actually gets longer, we know there's going to come a point when we're on the other side of the beach, the other side of the sand, and it's going to get easy again and we're going to enjoy what we have on the other side. Often, though, I think it's how we look at trials in the Christian life and even our various struggles with sin. We think about them as something that is going to, we're going to get through this and it's going to be done. We're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to get over whatever trial it is we're going through, and then it's going to be bliss on the other side. But the thing about our trials in the Christian life is that they don't always end when we get through that trial. In fact, most of the time there's another one waiting right around the bend. We get through that first set of miry sand that's bogged us down, and we think, great, this is it. But then there's a whole other section that we didn't see. And we get through that one, and there's another section that we don't see. And this is the picture I think we see this morning as we come to our text. It starts with David in a triumphal praise of the Lord that he has been rescued from the miry pit, that which was bogging him down. He's been taken out of it, and his feet are set on the rock. It is a time to rejoice. It is a time to glorify the Lord. But Psalm 40 doesn't end there. It goes through and it begins to discuss other trials, other tribulations. We see other periods where David struggles. By the time we get to the end of the passage, he's crying out for deliverance again, again, that his enemies would not encompass him, that they would not destroy him. And so I think this helps us to get a picture of the Christian life. On the one hand, if we are in Christ, there's a sense in which We've been rescued. We've been pulled out of the mire of sin. Our feet have been set on the rock. We have been given life in Christ. But the Christian life is one of continual sanctification, of continual growth in Christ, of continual need to grow more and more Christ-like, which means more and more sand, more and more mire, more and more struggles, and more and more difficulties as we get through this life. And so this morning we want to look at Psalm 40 and think about the the reality that on the one hand our lives are lived in response to the rescue that we have already received, but we look forward to the final rescue through Christ our Savior. We'll look at this passage in three main points. First of all, already rescued. Secondly, delighting in the Lord. And thirdly, still awaiting the kingdom. 
Now, verse 1 of our passage is a beautiful poetic statement. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Now, the underlying language here is is a little bit differently. Here we see it translated, and almost all translations do this. I waited patiently. But the underlying word is is, is a doubling up of the word waited. It's the idea of waiting and waiting. It's the, and it's in contrast with the previous psalm. Now, one of the reasons I'm preaching from the psalms this morning is the psalms are nice to preach from individually because they're an individual unit. But we also need to keep in mind that though they are individual units, they often are connected together. They're not just a haphazard throwing them together um, and without any thought going into it. There's often a throw, flow of thought through the psalms and that is taking place here. In Psalm 39, we see in verses 2 and 3, we see David again waiting, but this time he runs out of patience. He says, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. What is he saying? He says, I I waited I really tried to do what was right. I wasn't going to speak. I wasn't going to say anything. But it kept burning within me and I couldn't contain it. And eventually it came out. My patience ran out. But now in Psalm 40, David says, This time I waited patiently and I kept waiting. And the Lord heard me and he answered. And he took me out and he set my feet on the rock. On the one hand, the picture here as we look at verse 2, when he draws us out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. We're reminded that the timing of the Lord is rarely ours. The Lord acts in all the trials and tribulations, all of our sin that we struggle with. He acts in His time. But for the child of God, He does hear. He does listen. And He does rescue Now, the language is a little bit difficult here in the underlying language, but the translation, I think, captures the point. And that is that he draws us from this pit of destruction out of the miry bog. This idea, we might think of quicksand or something like that. Something we're sinking in. We can't rescue ourselves. We need somebody to reach down and pull us out. And so he does. On the one hand, we have no hope of rescue in ourselves, but he pulls us out And he doesn't just throw us up on the shore, but he takes and he sets us on this solid rock, this concrete platform, this concrete place from which we cannot sink again. Now, in one sense, as we look at this passage, we can think about this in a variety of ways. We can think about it from the various trials, struggles, and tribulations that we go through But as we see this morning, as we go through, I believe this is ultimately not talking about just ordinary difficulties in the Christian life, although there's an application to that. God does rescue us from our ordinary trials. But it's more than that. This is a picture of His rescue of us from our sin. The ultimate rescue of taking us from our condition of being in our father Adam to placing it into the second Adam, into Christ. Now think about the patience there. 
At the time David is writing, thousands of years have passed since the Lord promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. David still wouldn't see it in his lifetime. And it wouldn't be seen for many generations after him either. But in time, in the Lord's time, Christ came. And we see this emphasized that this is the point of redemption here in verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. These words, a new song, are very significant in Scripture. A new song is not just something we wrote today. The idea of a new song isn't something, I need something new to sing, so let me put some words to paper real quick. No, in Scripture, every time we see the words new song, we should pause and note, because it's significant. And it always has to do with redemption. The, the most important new song we see in Scripture initially is the song of Moses. Why? He penned those words, that new song, as God redeemed His people out of Israel, brought, or out of Egypt, brought them out of Egypt to take them to the promised land in the land of Israel. That new song focused upon the act of redemption. David pens a new song here because he's looking at the redemption anticipating truly what will happen in Christ, as we'll see in a moment. Then we also see in Revelation a new song, what? Praising the Lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world. The new song is always redemptive. And so that's the heart of this passage. It's not just general trials. Yes, the Lord delivers us from those. But the focal point is our greatest trial, the trial of sin, condemnation, and our loss in this life. We were sinking in our sin, blinded by our sin, but Christ, through His work, has rescued us. Now what's interesting here is he goes on to show how so often we try to find another way to be rescued. We see ourselves in the miry pit to a degree. We know we need help, but we try to find another way. Now David commends, though, the man who trusts the Lord alone. Verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds, your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, and yet they are more than can be told. Now, in verse 4, we see this statement, go astray after a lie. Now, some translations translate this thing like idols or false prophets or lying idols or lying spirits. You'll see different translations, though most have lie. And that's the literal translation, it's a lie, but it's implying the idea of a false means of escape, a false means of rescue. David said there are those who turn aside. They go after the lie. They listen to the promise of deliverance that is not real deliverance. They listen to the promise of escape that is actually a lie. It is deceitful. It is someplace besides the Lord. But he says the one is blessed who trusts the Lord alone because only the Lord can truly redeem us from the pit. Only the Lord can rescue us. 
Now, as we think through this, I think there is another aspect to be, to be thought about. And that is how we come into this place. The Sunday school lesson this morning, I think it was very appropriate in, in, in um, connecting with this. The idea that we thought about the, the parable of, the, uh, of the, the, the man has gone out and he's gathered the different workers, and some at the beginning of the day and some later. We could picture that in a variety of ways. The main one is theirs, the point that was made this morning. We have Israel selected early and the Gentiles later. We can also think of this in another way as well, and I think that is that each of us come to rescue at different times. But we've all been rescued. We're here this week for a youth conference, and we praise the Lord, and we look to see our young people rescued young, to come to faith so they don't go through some of the trials and tribulations and sin. They don't get bogged down in the miry pit the way that many of us others have. At the same time, the Lord does allow many of us to go through many years of sin before rescuing us from the pit. But no matter whether it's early or whether it's late, when the Lord rescues, our feet are set on the rock, all to the glory of His name. And the temporal rescue that we see pictured here, the idea of pulling out of, the, out of the, this quicksand, out of the miry pit, and setting us upon the rock, is all to point us to the eternal rescue, the new life that we have in Christ. And even as we think through this life and the fact that we will at times need rescue from temporal difficulties, this continues to point us to the fact that if we are in Christ, we have our ultimate rescue established. We have been saved unto Christ, a life that delights in the Lord. This brings us to the second point this morning, delighting in the Lord, and the fact that our response to this deliverance. Now our passage here is very closely connected to another king of Israel, and that is King Saul. Now, if you remember, when Saul was, was king, the Lord said he was rejected from being king for two different things. The first two are very closely connected to our passage. Remember, the first one is he is preparing to go into battle against the Philistines. And what are we told? He just needed to wait, wait a little bit longer. Samuel would arrive, he would offer up the sacrifice, and the Lord would bless the army going forth and fighting the Philistines. But unlike David here, he didn't wait. And remember, he took off, and as soon as, as soon as he leaves and goes to fight, we're told Samuel showed up. Just needed to wait a couple more minutes, and everything would have been fine, but he couldn't wait. He had no patience to wait on the Lord. But even more closely connected to our passage is the story we find in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and verses 22 through 23, which is directly quoted in uh, or it's almost directly quoted here in our text this morning. And that is the story of when he was sent out to destroy all of the Amalekites. He was told, go kill everybody, man, woman, child, their, all their animals, their livestock, destroy their crops, just raise the cities. Nothing is to be left. And Samuel shows up and says, did you do it? And Saul says, oh, absolutely, did everything the Lord told me to do, and all of a sudden they begin to hear some sheep in the distance. 
bleating and making all their noises. And Samuel says, then what's that I hear? Well, that, that, that's, that's a good thing. I, I killed everything else, but I saved these sheep because the, the, the Lord needs these sheep for sacrifice. We need to sacrifice these sheep to the Lord. And the Lord said, no. Or Samuel said, speaking for the Lord, no. The Lord doesn't want sacrifice. He wants obedience. And it's that event that is behind these verses in verses 6 through 8. We read here, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now this passage here is basically given in three different places in Scripture. It's given in 1 Samuel 15 through 22, where we see the original wording from Samuel saying the Lord doesn't delight in burnt offerings. He wants, or takes no pleasure in burnt offering. He wants, he wants obedience. We see it again in Hebrews chapter 10, where, and we'll come back to that in a moment and read that section where Paul takes this and applies it to Christ and talks again about the fact that these sacrifices cannot save. Now in 1 Samuel the wording is delighted, and we see that here. The Septuagint in, in, in Hebrews says, take no pleasure. We also see here at the end of it, verse 6, the idea of being required. Now, what do all these words help us to understand? Well, there's a sense in which all these sacrifices are not required of the Lord. He does not take delight in them. He does not take pleasure in them because they don't actually accomplish anything. There's ceremonial aspects to point to a heart that loves the Lord. But when they are done in a way to transgress the law of God, like with Saul, where he uses them as an excuse not to obey, then they become absolutely meaningless because they accomplish nothing on their own. There is nothing about the sacrifices of the Old Testament that could do anything to save anyone. All they did is point to a heart of obedience, a heart that loved the Lord. And if that heart isn't there, then there's nothing accomplished by these things. This is, if you want to turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 10, this is Paul's point there. Paul quotes these verses in verse, beginning in verse 5. He says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Paul goes on to explain that when he says you've taken no offerings, he says these are given according to the law. He says these are the things that don't accomplish anything on their own. He goes on and he goes to the passage to show how all of these sacrifices given over and over again can't atone for sin. What is needed is obedience. Now this is further the point here as verse 8 is, 7 and 8 are directly connected to Christ by Paul. It is Christ who says, Behold, I have come. 
and in the scroll of the book it is written of me. That is Christ speaking, not David, not the psalmist. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now we'll think in a moment how this is, there's an application for us individually, but the primary point here is that it is the obedience of Christ that gives us any hope. He is in contrast both to the sacrifice and the offering as the one who fulfills those, the true sacrifice for us. It is his death on the cross that make, gives us life, that pays the price for our sin, but it's also his perfect obedience, the one who came and perfectly kept the law that gives us life. As we think through the Old Testament, all of the sacrifices were given not because of what they accomplished themselves, but because of what they anticipated in the coming Savior. We need to think about this in a moment in the other direction, though, how all of our New Testament worship remembers what Christ has done. Verses 6, we see this picture of his open ear. Delight to do his will in verses 7 and 8. Sacrifices and worship are positive commands. They are things that we are called to do. And this is something important to think about. When we think about the call of obedience upon the Old Testament saints, part of their obedience ordinarily was doing the sacrifices. So it's a wrong thing to pit sacrifices against obedience in the sense as if somehow obeying means not sacrificing. Ordinarily, obeying meant sacrificing if you were a person in the nation of Israel. The problem was is when you tried to substitute ceremony for obedience to the moral law of God. Now how does this apply in the New Testament? We see a picture of this in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and verses 9 through 14. We see a man being healed on the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So if it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now this passage grounds much of what we think about when our confession says that on the Sabbath it is good to do acts of necessity and acts of mercy. Necessity being this idea of pulling your sheep out of the ditch. Necessity or mercy of healing the, those that are hurt, those are, that are lame, or other acts of such like. Now why is this important in our, we think about our text this morning so the overall teaching of Scripture is what? It is ordinarily to be with God on the Lord's day, to honor the Sabbath, to keep it holy. What Christ is saying here is there is a time when it is good to set that aside for mercy and necessity, and that is the true fulfillment of the law. But see, what is our problem? 
See, our problem is either to be like the Pharisees or Saul or others, and we want to excuse our sin by our keeping of, of ceremony, or conversely, we want to get rid of ceremony for our own selfish reasons in spite of the command to obey. When we really understand the call to obedience here, it is to bring us back to show us that on both sides we usually fail. We usually don't fail in honoring the ceremony the way we ought. And even more, we fail to do true mercy and true love as we are called. At the core, though, is to bring us back to the central point. God does not love us because we do, we worship Him. We worship Him because He has loved us. How does our passage begin? He, I called out and He pulled me out of the miry pit. He set my feet on the rock. All of this then is the response. David is saying, I praise the Lord because He rescued me. When we come back to Hebrews 10 and we remember that the whole point that Paul makes in Hebrews 10 is that it is Christ who is the one who is truly obedient. Remember, it's not our obedience with ceremony. It's not our obedience with any other part of the law that redeems us. That is what God requires is obedience. We should obey out of both duty and thankful thanksgiving. But in the end, we can only truly obey as we have been rescued, as we have been redeemed. It is Christ alone who is the one who has truly done the will of the Father. We hear, we obey, we love because Christ has first loved us. And so therefore in our text we can go back to verses 9 and 10 and see the rejoicing in response. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love, your faithfulness will ever preserve me. David says, as I have been rescued, as I have seen what the Lord has done, that he has redeemed me, he has given the true sacrifice, I now proclaim the delight that I have. Every act of obedience, everything that we do must be done from this perspective. The steadfast love of the Lord has been shown to us. And so we live in response to that. We delight in the Lord even as we continue to struggle with our sin. Even as we struggle with the various trials, we look forward to the hope that we have in Christ. We await the kingdom in its fullness. Now as we hit verse 12, we see seemingly a sudden shift. In fact, verses 13 through 17 are almost word for word Psalm 70. Due to the sudden shift in, in tone, 
and the fact that this psalm is almost entirely quoted someplace else, or this section is, some have led to, have argued that it's an appendage on, that somebody later on added Psalm 20, or Psalm 70 to Psalm 40. But this isn't the only place where we see such language used, where we see the doubling up of psalms. And I don't think we should go there. This is a situation where David is writing and he's looking at the struggles that we continue on in. Yes, we've been rescued and so we rejoice. We glorify the Lord. We praise Him, but we recognize our trials and tribulations aren't over. Our sanctification is still continuing. We see here in this last few verses a reflection that this life is still one of of struggle. We seek the rest of heaven. Right now we taste the rescue that has already, been ha- has already happened. We look forward to the fullness that is to come. Verse 12 points us in this direction. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. Now we can think about that by itself. When we think about evils, what's maybe our first thought? The, the difficulties of this world. But look at the next phrase. It's not the difficulties of this world that is truly at the problem. It is his own iniquities My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. What are the trials? What are the evils? It is our own sin. That's the greatest struggle we'll ever have. One of the most poignant statements made in my life was while I was in seminary. And one of my professors pointed out, he says, if you could go out here today and take the sin that is, you're struggling with the greatest and you could completely mortify it, get rid of it, it's gone. You never struggle with it another day in your life. The next day, ten more new sins will pop up. Because that's the way this life is. David says his iniquities are more than the hairs on his head. They're everywhere. And we continue to struggle with them throughout this life as we live between the rescues. As we continue to slodge through that miry pit. Recognizing we've been pulled out of our sin in one sense, but we're still crying out as David does in verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. And see, this is why that the ceremonies become the problem at times in our lives. Because see, so often ceremonies are easier to keep than the the rest of the law that we're called to keep. It's easy to go to church on Sunday and make a show of righteousness even though we're struggling with any number of sins throughout the week. It's easy to go down in the Old Testament and Take your lamb and put it on the altar and sacrifice it. The ceremonies are always easier to keep in many ways. This doesn't make them wrong or bad. That makes them very important. But we need to get back to the heart. What are my own iniquities? What are my own sins and my own struggles? On top of this is the attacks. We see this in verses 14 and 15. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who 
seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, Aha. Now I want to note a similar construction in verses 14 and verse 8. Verse 8, the psalmist says, I delight to do your will. Verse 14, those who attack delight in our hurt. And think about that for a moment. Isn't that one of the great problems of our sin? We go through this life and we struggle. We fall in sin. And the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of Christ rejoice. They delight in our hurt. They delight in our struggle. They delight in our failure. Even as we should be delighting in the will of God. David's heart breaks here at the end, but he still rejoices. Verse 16, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help, my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. And here's the great picture. We've been rescued. We've been pulled out of the miry pit. We've been set on the rock. But we're still poor and needy. Our sins still outnumber the hairs on our head. We still struggle with the various issues. We cannot repay deliverance. There's not a single act that we can do, a single ceremony that we can feel. We can do every ceremony ever created and yet we cannot replay, repay the deliverance of pulling us out of the miry pit and setting our feet on the rock. And yet as we saw in verse 14 his steadfast love and faithfulness ever preserve us. We are poor and needy but he has redeemed us and so therefore we can rejoice and be glad in him and his salvation. He is our help. He is our deliverer. And so let us praise the Lord. It is very tempting so often to think of the Christian life as fixed to a single event. There's many in our world who do this, aren't there? The once saved, always saved, easy believism, however, whatever title you want to put on it. Pray the prayer and then go live however you want to the rest of your life. There's a sense in which there's a, there's a kernel of truth as there always is in the great lies, isn't there? We've been rescued once and for all. Our feet have been pulled out of the miry pit. They've been set on the rock. That is absolute, concrete, and sure. If that has happened... We are, our salvation is fixed. It cannot be lost, it cannot be taken away. We have been rescued. But this life still has its trials, its tribulations. And there's many more rescues to come. What being pulled out of the pit does is help us to see even more how much struggle there is ahead. If we stay in the pit, we eventually just sink in the pit and we're, it's done. It's gone. We don't realize where we're at. 
but that as we've been pulled out and set on the rock, we begin to see the corruption of our nature, the remaining struggles, the remaining sin. And so we delight in Him because He's rescued us, but we still struggle. We delight in Him, and so we look forward to that final rescue. We confess and repent and look to the one who rescues us. We shout for joy for the rock. And we shout for joy from the rock that we have been set upon, the rock that is Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the one who has delighted in the law fully, who has kept the law, who has been sacrificed for us. He is the rock of salvation. He is the one on whom we stand. And so we rejoice and we glorify him even as we have been rescued and as we look to the great rescue in the end. And so let us shout for joy this morning. Let us rejoice and sing his praises in all that we do. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and glorify your name for the rock of our salvation, the one on whose feet, on, on whose, whom we, our feet have been set. Even as we struggle through this life, may we keep plodding ahead, knowing that our Savior will never leave us or forsake us. His steadfast love will endure forever. And the one who has kept the law for us has given us his life as the ransom for our sin. And may we glorify you for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.